You are tuning in to Slightly Balanced, hosted by Tia and Petey. This show is all about all things positivity, business, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mental health. We encourage you to listen if you are looking for a relatable community that will cheer you on in life. Welcome back to another episode of Slightly Balanced, where we hope to relate, create a relationship with our listeners. Today, we have Dr. Dan Behrens and nurse practitioner uh, Phoebe, and uh, we are going to ask them a few questions and about how uh, the World Wide Web, or as Dr. Behrens likes to say, simply the internet, and how it affects a patient relationship and how it makes our medical system easier for both parties. So how has the internet helped connect patients and doctors, in your guys' opinion? Well, it's uh, it it's a mixed bag overall, but uh, overall it, it has help, been helpful as far as um, communicating with uh, the portal, like we'll talk about later. Um, you can relay your lab data and, and that kind of thing a lot quicker, and it's really hard to catch people on the phone these days. Um, so that's one of the main ways. There's a lot of data out there, which can be good and bad if you're looking for um, a zebra, uh, you're probably, uh, you know, not going to find that. Um, it, it can be a mixed bag as far as in, interpreting your own feelings and, and, uh, symptoms that you might have, um, which is going into the art of medicine and how we really need to sort all that out. Which leads me into our next question, um, which for me, it's kind of a, um, I'm that person and you I might be your least favorite patient probably. Um, but I research literally everything before I go into the doctor, the, like what potentially could be bad or if I'm having a procedure done, I want to know the worst outcomes and the most positive outcomes and what to prepare myself for. That way I know what questions to ask when I go in to talk to my doctor. Um, but it also if I have a rash, I probably try to self-diagnose too much. <laughs> you guys probably hate. Um, but I guess what would you say to patients who research their own symptoms, you know, pros and cons of being let loose out into the internet and into the wild? I think one of the biggest cons is that there's a lot of misinformation on the internet um, and it can be difficult to navigate the sources of your information to be sure that you have um, a credible source and that you're getting true information rather than somebody's opinion or an example of something that happened to somebody in Canada five years ago. Um, however, I do think that the other downside to researching your symptoms is that you can perpetuate a lot of fear that you have about whatever your situation is. People use the word research a lot, just like we say um, like or awesome a lot. Um, research is a scientific reference, really, and uh, it's really how we know anything. So a lot of people will talk about anecdotal kind of research, which is like something their grandmother had or something like that, um, which is not the same as like a meta-analysis, which takes like a lot of scientific data together, um, or even uh, there's different levels of, uh, of research. And just seeing an article from the Washington Post is not the same 
Um, so we we practice evidence based medicine, and uh, and that's that's the that's the best way to practice medicine these days. And uh, so there's a lot of levels to that, and there's a lot of interpretation for all that. Um, there, internet, there, there's a lot of uh, blogs and that kind of thing out there that patients will present with, and we'll have to uh, weigh the good and the bad with all that. And I like to turn them towards articles like from the CDC or Medline or something like that that can direct them towards a better direction. I do think that another to another point of that using the internet to figure out where the best place for you to seek your care is a benefit. So if you are like, Hey, I have this rash. Do I need to go to a dermatologist or do I need to go to my primary care provider? That's one place where the internet can be helpful and working in the urgent care. I feel like the internet can be helpful in helping to have patients figure out whether they need to go to the emergency room to urgent care, whether it's a non-urgent problem that they should be able to wait a week or two to get in with their primary care provider about. So can you guys kind of direct us in some more areas where people would be looking at, you know, like WebMD or are we talking, you know, like scholarly articles or how can people actually do research? Like if they are diagnosed, let's say with breast cancer, where, where would you turn them? And, um, you know, I think that that would be helpful for a lot of people instead of just doing the blogs that we see so often. Yeah, so there's some main ones off the top, like CDC. Um, the Mayo Clinic has a, has a lot of articles on there. Um, Cleveland Med- Clinic. Cleveland Clinic, too. Yeah, Medline. Um, most of those sources have been um, sorted through, and, and they, don't, they don't have any of the fad or trendy or um, bad medicine stuff out there. I also think that when you already have a diagnosis and that's what you're researching, using whatever your diagnosis's um, organization or association is. So the American Cancer Association, the American Diabetes Association, American Heart Association, those are all reliable sources of information regarding your specific disease process. And they can also help as a patient to connect you to communities to support you in your disease process. So one of the things Dan and I often talk about is that a lot of patients go out and just read whatever article and then they're kind of an expert on that type of um, diagnosis or whatever. Um, Can you guys kind of talk about the difference between a research blog, quote unquote, versus just being like an actual educated doctor? Um, so ultimately we don't like, uh, patients to self-diagnose themselves. We would rather have them use the internet to, um, use like to research their diagnosis after they've been diagnosed. Yeah. Post-diagnosis, you, you use the internet to better understand, um, their, uh, what, what they can expect and outcomes and all that from there. Um, Diagnosing people is really, really hard, and uh, and uh, it's a uh, that's why they kind of call medicine a practice. And there's a lot of art to like what we do. Um, there's a lot of interpretation of the medical system locally, nationally, using insurances and all kinds of stuff out there. But uh, you know, it's uh, we went to school for this for a long dang time, and uh, and we're still working on it. And and medicine is constantly evolving. There's lots of new information out there, but uh, but you know, getting it from the best sources is really 
um, the best way to go. So you're going to definitely suggest post-research versus pre-research. So duly noted, because that's me. Yes. <laughs> WebMD has definitely given me lots of diseases that I don't have. <laughs> I, I do have to say, getting ready for this, I went on M- WebMD and I have a little bit of a cold. So I said, I'm going to plug my symptoms into their symptom checker. Oh, that's a good one. So I plugged in headache, cough, runny nose, <laughs> and fatigue. One of the diagnoses. And you were dying. One of the di- <laughs> the first one that popped up was migraine headaches, which is clearly not what I have. Cold was in there, which is what I have, but so was full blown AIDS. Okay. I so don't have AIDS. Good to know. <laughs> so mic drop. So I'm done. I don't have AIDS. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Thank you, WebMD. <laughs> so I know we have referenced the portal several times in our conversation. So um, for those of you that may have not been to that doctor for a while or um, maybe don't even have it in your area, depending on where you're listening from, uh, can you guys talk a little bit about what the portal is like and what, what the pros are for um, patients and what the pros are for doctors and how it helps your relationship a little bit better with your patients? Okay, so I used... Um I use the portal a lot and uh, when I can because it's a lot easier to uh, relate uh, lab results and, and that kind of thing and uh, provide my interpretation and that kind of thing uh, for the results that they that they have. Um, it's, uh, it's a lot better sending that out than trying to be on the phone and trying to catch people on the phone. That's really tough and you end up leaving voicemails and all that. Um, I don't like being on the phone. Um, Otherwise, uh, patients can send you messages, which is good and bad. I mean, I, I do like patients to be involved in their care. Um, but uh, sometimes they can develop a bit of a pen pal there. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, um, every as far as that kind of medical advice, I don't get paid for that. And it, take, it does take a, quite a bit of time. And so uh, there's some good and bad with how after so many uh, correspondences back and forth. Ultimately, the information just can kind of get sour from there because it, it's it's uh, it's all all through communication through text and not through interpersonal correspondence. And so beyond that, it, it's just better to come in and see me. As a patient, I know I have used the portal for different things like. I was in Sacramento, California and got pink eye and I was able to message my primary care provider here at home and send them a picture of my eye, tell them that this is what I think is going on. And they were able to send a prescription to my nearest pharmacy in California where I was for the week. So there are some benefits to that where as I was able to be cared for by my provider at home rather than seeking out a stranger in a strange place that doesn't know me. But there also can be a lot of, like Dan said, mis, misread social cues because you don't have somebody's face in front of you to help you interpret the emotion or the tone behind what they're communicating. So I definitely feel like the portal helps people um, take charge of their healthcare journey um, in a good way or a bad way. Um, I know for my family in particular, so like my mother-in-law, my, my grandma-in-law, or my, my, yeah, however you want to say that. Um, you know, she's a full, my mother-in-law is a full-time teacher. And so she's not able to aid, uh, our grandma in her dementia 
journey and isn't able to go to all of her appointments with her just because she does have a full-time job. Um, so it's nice for her to be able to get on the portal, see what they talked about at their appointment, you know, be up to speed on what the doctor advises because I mean, let's be honest, the grandma's not going to remember. She may have just been like, oh, you told me to take vitamin D. That could not have even been the conversation. So it's nice for family members to be able to monitor their loved one's um, diagnosis and to be able to have that. So I know for my family, that's been a blessing, but I definitely can see how that might be um, a a challenge um, to be able to respond back to those emails. I know Tia and I, as business owners, it's hard to just respond back to emails for business inquiries. I can only imagine healthcare has definitely opened up a whole nother window. Yeah, and you get like aunt, sister one, sister two, sister three, and they're all messaging in and all different things. So I think it does open up a full spectrum especially for you Phoebe where you're like dealing with an older population the seniors the majority of my practice I practice in urgent care one day a week or so and the rest of my practice is with geriatric um, long-term care assisted living patients as well as patients that are still living in our community and able to come into the clinic there's a lot of family members that care about their loved one and in those situations it can be trying when all these people are calling in and it gets to be a bit of a gray area legally. Who can we talk to about care? And so it really becomes important in those situations to have your go-to point person for your family. You need to have this daughter is in charge of disseminating this information among family members and to make sure that they have the, that go-to person so that you're not being inundated by Sally Jane and Harry with questions about their grandma. So I know we've kind of talked about how um, the internet has connected doctors and patients, um, how it empowers the patients, um, and maybe some of the pros and cons it causes for the doctors. Um, I'd be really interested to know how has the internet helped you guys as doctors? I know there's a lot of um, data consumption. You guys have a lot of you know more data available to you guys mm-hmm. nationwide and internationally um, to help better diagnose your patients. So you know for patients, we may not know what the healthcare systems like for you guys as doctors and how the internet has affected you. So what tools do you guys use that to help you in your practice that, you know, we may not know as patients? Mm-hmm. Well, at work, we have this resource called up to date. It's continuously updated and, uh, you get new information, um, all, uh, interpreted for you. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a great reference for us. Uh, it's a skill to, to develop and, uh, and, Medicine is changing all the time. You need to be on the edge of it all the time. And so uh, to sharpen that edge, you always need to be looking at things um, through journals or or what have you. But the Internet is a lot better to use. (laughs) I do think one thing that I learned from a recent continuing education opportunity at the barn at Aspen Acres was about... The speaker spoke about medical education and how it's changed over time. And one of the things he spoke about was that medical education used to be about memorizing information. And as technology has grown, it now becomes about knowing where to find information and how to interpret it. Um, Part of my doctoral education as a nurse practitioner, the reason that my degree as a doctor is because of the extensive education that I underwent about how to interpret and develop and disseminate research. So there was um, a research component to my degree, which is what changed it from a master's to a doctorate. And that is, like Dan said, a skill. It's a class that we have about how to 
read research to get the point to know whether it's a good study just because something's published in a journal doesn't mean that it's a study that was good so how to know that it was a good study how to know how to apply that to your patient population whether it's a generalizable study whether it applies to the patients that you care for or whether it's really specific to patients that live in a boarding school in China yes yeah, so a lot of our education was in understanding science and uh you you have to know the basics if you're going to read um, any research articles to really un- understand that. We have these uh, these meetings every so often called Journal Club in which we will uh, go through different topics and then we'll discuss as a group of doctors or um, practitioners to uh, interpret if this is a good study, if the the methods and, and the way that they conducted the study was um, legitimate, if there's any biases and and all kinds of th- things that can throw off a, any research. So it's in, it's interpretable, and, that, and that's a skill. Um, but uh, um, it's it's as concrete as as you can get in in learning anything and, and to understand anything. Well, I know we talk about about like the internet and how it affects people, WebMD, things like that, blogs. Um, But let's talk about um, mobile apps. So basically the mini computers in our hands. Um, So I know that, you know, there's people who have sleep apps. They have, well, I know my friend, she has, um, and I don't know the scientific words, so don't think I'm dumb, but she has diabetes um, and her monitor is able to, I'm able to link up to it. So is her boyfriend and so are her parents. So they can watch her diabetic levels and, and keep track of her, um, which is really cool way to share your one, your health with someone and make sure there's other eyes monitoring that kind of stuff. Do you guys ever have people who reference their sleep apps or diabetic apps or calorie counts or their heart rates from their iPhones to help diagnose the problem they might have going on? Or um, is that maybe, I don't know, a silly question, but I mean, everybody's so connected to their health care journey via their iWatch anymore. You know, that could be a cool tool for you guys. So um, there's there's a lot of devices out there which have um, enabled a lot of cool avenues to treat like diabetes. Uh, there's a lot of cool technology there to stay on top of diabetes. Um, makes it a lot better, a lot easier to treat and a lot more nuanced. Um there's uh, lots of apps out there. Um, some of them are pretty neat as far as patients tracking their calorie counts and that kind of thing. Um, I, I don't really have a, any reference, I guess, as far as any sleep apps. Um, but uh, do you have any, Phoebe? Well, I think that my patient population isn't always the most technology savvy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that this is something that will change as in time as our aging population becomes more and more comfortable with technology. Um, but I think of the majority of people that are elderly with chronic diseases aren't necessarily utilizing things like a uh, blood pressure tracker on their phone. But there are people who are younger or much more technology savvy with chronic diseases who are able to use their phone, which is always with you, to help gather data to provide to us as providers um, to help in their care. So my question, kind of coming in and changing directions, I want to talk a little bit about billing um, and when patients kind of come in and they reflect that exact cost of a medical billing and they kind of want to call you guys out as providers as to, 
hey, why did you charge me? Like they blame it straight on you. And I think you guys are in a unique situation because you guys aren't under your own independent brick and mortar as a business. Um, so kind of talk through that and from a patient perspective, kind of some ways that maybe you would have the conversation about billing or maybe to kind of ease it out to, to know that it shouldn't be a direct reflection maybe of your guys's, you and the patient's visit, but r- rather their experience. So in general, if this is the first encounter, it would be like a new patient visit. And in, and then in general, we bill out uh, according to how much time or how much complexity uh, we were dealing with that day and, and, and then encounter. Um, you know, we uh, it, coding and billing is, is like, um, I guess, the, the only way that you kind of get an interpretation on, on, on what, how complex, uh, you covered, um, their medical cares that day. Um, it's one size, you know, it's, it's, it's not terribly nuanced, uh, but, uh, but it's what we have, I guess. Go ahead. So from like my understanding with billing and correct me if I'm wrong, this is just conversation, but, um, with billing, it's not really something that was created by doctors for doctors. It was created by insurance companies, A, to be able to collect from the patients. Um, and it's just a system for you guys really to be able to track how your experience with the patient went that day. So you have something to reference. Mm-hmm. Um, say if you weren't the doctor, their next visit, the doctor can then reference what codes were used to better interpretate how that, vis- how that visit went. Mm-hmm. Um, and the codes just kind of help the doctors decipher that. But I think the biggest thing people have to understand is it's this was not a system created by doctors. This was very much a system mm-hmm. created by insurance um, to better help doctors and to get you know this is you know our medical systems paid essentially right and we're not like just charging you ten dollars to the friend that I like two hundred to the next <laughs> <laughs> yeah we are obligated to just kind of be very by the book by that you know if anything outside of those realms are are fraud really so it's mm-hmm. it's really to protect you guys I would say too yeah and uh And yeah, it's just a straightforward kind of thing. Either you did it or you didn't. So um, I'm kind of asking some other just random off the cuff questions here. So one of the questions I had in this obviously is a conversation to some stuff that we've gone over previously. But let's say a patient is diagnosed with um, something that's considered rare. Um, So let's say or, or they haven't, but they have symptoms that are considering to maybe be something rare do you guys feel oftentimes that they want to be like they fixate on them being that unique patient and they like want to be that one in a million so dan referenced a saying earlier about zebras and the saying goes when you hear hoof beats think horses not zebras so if you hear hoof beats where we live it's usually going to be a horse and not a zebra running down the road so it's not coronavirus it's not (laughs) coronavirus it's a cold it could be coronavirus but not the novel coronavirus of 2019 (laughs) commonly known as wuhan virus so i think that there can be some fixations but as medical providers our job is to rule out the most common and the most concerning first and foremost and so when a patient truly is fixated on a rare disease process, sometimes it causes them to feel dismissed because we need to talk about what's most likely or what's most emergent first and foremost before we tease down to a 
a rare but chronic disease process that needs specialty care. Yes, the, uh, in diagnosing anyone, there's a there's a process. There's a there's a best practice kind of process to interpret um, your your lab values as you get them and to uh, diagnose someone. So you you start off, you know, with like least invasive, maybe even least costly, or you know, um, most common uh, things to to start off with first, because um, uh, you know you don't need that that MRI to go straight off the bat because that's uh, that's poor use of our um, of our resources in general. And I think the other thing to go off of the billing question from earlier that's worth noting is that health insurances more and more dictate how we can approach a problem. So a health insurance may not pay for an MRI until you've done all these other tests first. And in that case, our ability as a medical provider to diagnose you is dictated by a third party. And so we might Which not, you don't want the patient to pay out of pocket for the MRI. Exactly. So, you're so going we might to go be, you know, jumping through these other hoops where a patient might feel dismissed or discredited, but it's really to protect them in the long run because I value your money and your resources. I don't want you to waste that. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you have something you'd like to add from today's podcast, shoot us an email at hello at slightlybalanced.com and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the things, (laughs) all the things, all the socials and join us next week as we are back and talking to you more about some more goodness and have a fantastic week. We will see you next time. Hey guys, also, can you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts? It would really help us. Uh, We know every podcast needs this, but, you know, us little P-donk, little people people (laughs) here in South Dakota. We need it. (laughs) We We want to know you're listening. We want to know you care. So And make them funny so that we can laugh because we like to laugh. Don't be negative Nellies, though. Only fast (laughs) does. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs)